I'm told that when you're navigating a ship, um, in order to hold a, a, a true line, um, in order to reach your destination, you need to constantly check your bearing, uh, either one way or another, because um, a slight deviation at one point will mean that uh, at the end of a long journey, you are uh, perhaps hundreds of miles off course. Now, I think we need to hold the same uh, uh, concept when it comes to understanding what it means to be a Christian and what it means to understand uh, the Bible. Um, it requires us to constantly check our understanding so that we, um, uh, that we stay on this uh, narrow way. One of the unfortunate aspects of the human condition is our um, tendency to define ourselves in reaction to other people. And uh, you see that throughout society, you see it in uh, politics and in culture, but you also see it in the church. And um, uh, we're often far more clear about what we're not and who we stand against than who we are. Now, uh, sometimes that's important, but it's a slightly dangerous game. Because that very defining ourselves in reacting against people can pull us badly off course. And there is a tendency in those situations for us to end up drifting towards extremes and uh, losing track of uh, the balance, the good that's on the other side of the argument. I see it in lots of areas of uh, life and of um, uh, church, and um, I, I find it really quite dangerous, um, a tendency for everybody to get pushed into uh, extremes of one way or another. And the ability to hold a middle ground, to hold together difficult truth, is actually one of the most important aspects of our faith. If you think about it, um, the foundations of, Christian, of the Christian faith are, are difficult truths that are reconciled. For example, the wrath and the mercy of God. Uh, we can't lurch to either one or the other of those without totally misunderstanding the gospel. Likewise, the uh, humanity and uh, the divinity of Christ, that whole uh, understanding of the Trinity, which is at the heart of our faith, is an incredibly complicated uh, set of ideas held together and people get into error when they uh, lean on one side more than the other. Now where all of that comes from today is from the passage that we're looking at um, in Luke 9, verses 18 to 27. And uh, we're going to look at the passage as a whole, but there's one phrase in it which um, is uh, deeply significant. And um, it's where in verse 23 Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And we're going to think about that some more because it's a, a remarkable and a frankly slightly scary call on discipleship. But the reason why this whole question of extremes comes up is because um, uh, I'm asking the question, how do we hold that, that call to um, uh, self-sacrificial discipleship together with um, uh, the sort of understanding of the Christian life which has uh, um, been far more sort of uh, uh, popular uh, in recent days and um, uh, uh, there's been real good things that come out of it but this idea that Jesus comes that we might have life and life in all its fullness how do we hold together this idea of um, uh, a suffering uh, service and life in all its fullness how do we hold those two extremes together and find a way uh, by which life in all its fullness and suffering service are united. For some Christians, uh, life is all about taking up your cross. For others, it's all about life in all its fullness. And um, how do we hold those two ideas together? Let's start then by looking at this passage, Luke 9, 18 to 27. And um, it's the story of uh, Jesus uh, addressing his disciples with a question. And um, in verse 18, they're, uh, uh, they're praying 
And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do the crowds say I am? The crowds, of course, have realised that there is something remarkable going on amongst them. This figure of Jesus of Nazareth with his teaching and his miracles is clearly something extraordinary. And the disciples report back and they say that um, uh, some of the crowds say that you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others that one of the prophets from long ago has come back to life. But then Jesus asks them the real question. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter, always the first to speak, Peter confesses and says, you are the Christ of God. Now this is a hugely significant moment, particularly for Peter, for the disciples as a whole, in their, um, uh, uh, the process of understanding what's going on, the process of understanding who Jesus is. But I'm struck not by uh, Peter's confession at this point, um, but actually about how long it's taken and how little they've understood to this point. And actually, they're not even all the way there yet. Peter hasn't begun to understand the whole of Jesus' uh, divine nature, uh, his place as the second person of the Trinity, that he is fully God and yet fully man. And in fact, it would take... Um, Uh, the best part of three centuries for uh, Christians to really uh, put all of that into words. Peter's confession here, significant though it is, is rooted in the Old Testament. He says, you are the Christ of God. You are that, uh, that figure promised throughout those wonderful Old Testament prophecies. You are the one who will come to save Israel. You are the Messiah. You are the new King David. You are the Christ, the anointed one. The chosen one. Now, I don't know if you've um, ever noticed this, but the four Gospels uh, handle uh, this question of the nature of Jesus quite differently. And um, uh, John, most famously, uh, starts off with the, uh, the Trinity, with the divinity of Christ. Right up front, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And um, uh, that's the approach that I think most of the uh, modern church takes towards evangelism. But uh, uh, two of the other evangelists, most notably uh, Mark and Luke, take a very different approach. And their stories are the unfolding of understanding of the character of God. Uh, Mark so much so that uh, it's not even all that clear by the end of the gospel. And um, uh, uh, it's left with the, uh, the resurrection, the sort of final proof of Jesus' identity hanging slightly up in the air. But for Luke... This slow progression of understanding the character of Jesus, understanding who he is, that's Luke's approach to evangelism. And it strikes me as um, quite different to the way that we often do evangelism. Lots of modern evangelism is very upfront about the uh, nature of uh, Jesus. And uh, our statement from early on is that this Jesus is the Son of God. And I think for most Christians, if you, if you were to ask them to tell you one thing about Jesus, it would probably be something along the lines of, well, Christians think he's the son of God. This approach to evangelism, whereby uh, we allow uh, the character of Jesus, remarkable human being and his events and his teaching to, uh, uh, to form in people's uh, minds, uh, to impress itself upon them. And from that, for them to start to uh, try and make sense of who Jesus is to my mind, is a far more appropriate one for a sceptical age. In fact, let's take it further than that. Um, what Jesus seems to do here, note that um, uh, most of the people following him really haven't worked out who he is at all. 
The story we had just before Luke 9 was the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, a remarkable prophetic event, but also a, uh, an experience of the kingdom of God for these 5,000 or so people uh, gathered in the wilderness. Um, it's a sort of Moses-like uh, picture with them all out there in the desert and being sustained and fed by food from on high. And um, uh, they sort of received the blessings of the kingdom. They're incorporated into uh, the kingdom as the uh, kingdom of God sort of overflows at this point in the story. And yet they have no real understanding of who the king is. Some of them say he's John the Baptist, others say he's Elijah, and others one of the prophets from long ago. It seems that people can uh, experience the benefits of the kingdom without understanding who the king is. And that, for me, is um, a, a, a big statement. The idea that the kingdom of God might be the thing which is the forerunner to people recognising the king. That, of course, is Jesus' ministry. He goes out and he brings forth the blessings of the kingdom of God. He brings forth wholeness and healing and uh, justice and truth. And it's through people's experience of those things that they recognise the king. Whereas modern Christian evangelism tends to go the other way around. Recognise this king, acknowledge him, confess your sins, trust in him, and then just maybe you will receive some of the benefits of the kingdom. Now my second observation is... Um, uh, just quite how quickly Jesus uh, is at lengths to correct their understanding of what this kingdom of God is going to be like. Look, literally the moment that Jesus, uh, that Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, Jesus comes straight back at them and goes, uh, verse 21, he strictly warned them not to tell anyone about this. And then he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus is saying, don't think for a minute that this kingdom is going to be triumph and glory and miracles the whole time. And in actual fact, the centre of what's going to happen here is that I'm going to be rejected and ultimately I'm going to be killed. It's actually another one of those um, uh, uh, real tensions that we need to kind of try and hold together. Um, if you were uh, with us through the stuff we were doing on Isaiah, you'll see um, uh, quite how uh, glorious the pictures painted of this um, uh, Christ this uh, coming Messiah were and the kingdom that he was to bring in uh, full of glory and wholeness and justice and the restoration of humanity and of the, the whole of creation. But Jesus is saying the way that's going to come is not through triumph and victory, but through suffering and ultimately my death. And if you read the whole of this chapter of uh, Luke chapter 9, you'll see that he just comes back to it time after time. Guys, you're going to have to understand this. This is not going to come naturally to you. But you need to understand that the way this kingdom is going to come is not through triumph and victory, but through suffering and uh, persecution and oppression, rejection and even death. This kingdom of God comes through suffering. And then it goes on in verse 23 to say that, um, and so therefore, if, if any of you are going to follow me, you're going to have to walk in my footsteps. And um, uh, if anyone would come after me, he says, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Now I've heard some Christians try and make out that, um, that really what Christ has done is done our suffering for us, that uh, through his life and his death upon the cross, um, uh, he's uh, dealt with all of that um, uh, stuff and so uh, we're set free into this sort of wholeness of life so that suffering needn't mark our lives that we're 
promised or that God's intention for us is uh, that we should be whole. But I think you just really struggle to, um, uh, to take that from uh, these words. Jesus is, seems to be very clear that uh, my road, my way is going to be one of uh, suffering. And so therefore, so is yours. If you're going to be my disciple, then you need to walk in my footsteps. You must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Paul says something um, similar in um, uh, his second letter to the Corinthians, um, uh, right at the beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, uh, praise be to the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. That's a remarkable idea, and Paul talks about it elsewhere, that somehow Christians share in the suffering of Christ so that they might also be part of his victory and of his comfort and of his triumph. Now Jesus realises that this is, uh, uh, doesn't sound like particularly good news, that this is certainly hard for us to understand. And um, so he explains in uh, verse 24, he says uh, that um, our lives are saved in the process of losing them. If anyone wants to save his life, he will lose it. And yet whoever loses his life for me will save it. And he also says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and let yet lose or forfeit his very self? So here we come to the crunch, to that question. How is it that um, uh, 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 this life of taking up our cross is the same life that Jesus talks about, that we might have life and life in all its fullness? Well, I'd like to start by thinking about um, children. And um, uh, the sort of characteristics that we'd be described, that we would describe as uh, childish. Um, now, these sort of characteristics, when they're exhibited in children, that's fine. It's sort of to be expected, and uh, often it's quite endearing. But uh, there are characteristics which uh, adults display, which we would then describe as uh, childish, and uh, that's a real sort of uh, 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 dismissal or a criticism of people. The sort of characteristics that might be uh, described as uh, uh, childish are. Um, Wanting to get your own way all the time, um, uh, not being able to sort of compromise or share very easily, um, uh, temper tantrums, stamping your feet when you don't get your own way. Um, what else? The inability to understand other people's point of view or to do what's right for someone else, even if it's not um, particularly right for you. You notice that all of these uh, traits are, are essentially selfishness and um, uh, 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 children uh, grow up, uh, they start off actually just very sort of selfish and it's the process of growing up and being loved and being part of a family um, uh, that uh, helps them to, uh, to lose that selfishness and to become part of uh, a, a loving uh, set of relationships and that's part of what maturity looks like. Now um, uh, the phrase I think we need to understand in uh, 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 in Jesus' words here, is the phrase to deny yourself. He talks elsewhere about losing uh, yourself, but uh, to follow him means to deny yourself. And um, uh, far from that being a sort of picture of uh, uh, beating yourself up, uh, I think it's actually a really healthy process um, because it's uh, really the next stage in that uh, uh, maturing process that um, uh, just as children start off selfish and then grow to adults and lose some of that selfishness. So um, uh, 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 Christian maturity uh, continues that process and uh, we just start to, uh, uh, to be able to uh, put down 
um, our in, in, inerrant sort of egotism. And um, uh, well, that's, uh, that's, uh, although maybe that sounds like a sort of painful process, I think actually what it does is uh, helps us to let go of some of the things which cause us the most pain. So think about the things that you end up worrying about, um, things like uh, what people think of you, what you're doing with your life, uh, your uh, uh, relationships and uh, uh, your standing in society, things like uh, vanity and pride. I don't know if you um, remember, but a few weeks ago we were uh, suggesting that perhaps some of the things that our society values most highly actually aren't that good for us. So things like wealth and success and uh, recognition and acceptance actually are, in real terms, woes. They're burdens that people end up carrying. And uh, they're not necessarily bad things, but um, uh, they're things which absorb a great deal of uh, energy and, and cause us quite a lot of uh, pain. Well, Jesus takes it further here. And he says um, uh, they're dangerous uh, for more reasons than that. They're dangerous uh, because they threaten our very salvation. What good is it for a man, in verse 25, to gain the whole world and yet to lose or forfeit his very self? So you see, the way of discipleship is uh, the way of self-denial. It's, um, it's putting off our, uh, uh, what remains of our sort of childish selfishness, uh, putting off our pride and our egotism, uh, wanting the world to work uh, around us for our own good. And it is the ability to um, uh, focus our lives on others, first onto God and then onto our neighbour. The ability to enter into um, uh, people's troubles, enter into the suffering and injustice of the world and to give ourselves in those situations, to make sacrifices uh, for the sake of the good of the kingdom of God and for the good of others. And here's the bit where we hold together those two truths. Because it's... Um, it's my belief that it is in that process, that process of uh, losing our pride and our selfishness, that we find that wholeness of life. It's in letting go of all of those things which actually causes the greatest amount of pain and uh, anguish that we find peace, that we find a, a relationship with God which nurtures and nourishes and satisfies. It's in these places that our soul, instead of our ego, is uh, built up. Now there's a danger of pushing this to an extreme and uh, you will probably know some uh, Christians who kind of lurched far too far down this sort of self-denial route and here's a warning that um, uh, it's a little bit too easy for uh, our desire to serve to be driven actually by the same selfishness that we've been talking about. Either a desire to want to be seen to be serving a sort of um, uh, 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 selfish humility um, uh, a desire to sort of feel like uh, we're doing good, or um, it's motivated by guilt, which is a complicated phenomenon, but um, uh, is often rooted in someone else's selfishness demanding uh, upon us. And that kind of service really doesn't do anybody any good. Uh, it diminishes people and it um, uh, uh, turns them in on themselves. And uh, uh, some Christians, when they sort of get sucked into this, uh, seem to just become slightly empty. There's almost, it's almost as if there's, there's nothing there. Uh, they're always trying to sort of deflect attention away from this themselves. And that's not the wholeness of life that um, uh, Jesus is calling us to. There were many times when Jesus said no to people because he wanted to do what was good for them, what was right for them, which wasn't necessarily what they wanted. He was able to see into situations and have the wisdom to uh, speak and act in any given circumstance for the good of the person and the good of the kingdom of God. 
you know, as ever with these situations, our model is um, Jesus himself. Uh, when I try and think of examples of Christians who live this out, I sort of have uh, little pictures here and there of people who've actually given their lives in uh, service, uh, given their lives for the for the kingdom of God. And actually when you meet them as people, there is a wholeness about them. There is a depth and a quality and a, a richness. There's a sort of sparkle in their eyes and a, a, a wisdom, a sense of humour uh, that that work of the Spirit, sort of restoring their humanity, even in the midst of some of the suffering they've seen, has uh, formed them as Christ-like figures. But of course, ultimately we look to Jesus. Jesus, this man, who was able to enter into all of the struggles and injustice and suffering of this world, who wept at its brokenness and uh, shared in its pain, and yet was uh, more human, more alive than anyone we'll ever meet. There's a final warning in this passage, and it's in uh, verse 26, where Jesus says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And the question is, what is there to be ashamed of in Jesus? He's this remarkable figure. Uh, he's a, a human being who stands head and shoulders above others. His teaching is sublime. His acts of uh, love and mercy uh, are exceptional. Well, in the context, the thing that's to be ashamed of is this thing that we struggle with the most, that the way the kingdom comes is through suffering and that Jesus would be not the glorious king, but the suffering servant. That is the thing which the disciples could have been ashamed of. Some of them were. That's the thing that perhaps Christians throughout the ages have struggled with the most. And Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. This whole idea of the suffering servant and of uh, walking in his footsteps means uh, entering into that suffering of Christ. That's hard and uncomfortable. But I don't want us to just sort of embrace it um, uh, stoically, feeling slightly miserable. But I want us to recognise that actually in this way of Christ is the way to the wholeness of life. There is a fullness of relationships, of uh, humanity and of love here. This is the way of Christ. So the call is to bravely take up your cross, to walk um, uh, into the midst of the uh, suffering and brokenness of this world and to be willing to be part of uh, that, to cry with people, to suffer alongside them and also to bring the love and the peace of God into those situations. But with the promise that not only are you at, uh, earning an eternal reward through doing that, but that in these things there is the wholeness of life, the wholeness of love and uh, uh, relationships and depth of wisdom, that here is life and life in all its fullness. Let no one tell you that the middle road is an easy way. This is a high calling. This is the narrow way. This is the way of Jesus Christ. <laughs>